I was going to talk about, I think initially, about the challenges. Uh, I was asked to talk about the challenges of leading a, a big city. But the last few days have been so inspired uh, by our presenters that I want to talk about uh, something else, civitas uh, and service. You know, I, I grew up, I got involved in politics at 15. I, w I uh, was involved in the farm worker boycott with Cesar Chavez. Uh, I met uh, and was involved in the civil rights movement uh, as a young uh, boy and got involved in the labor movement after that. I, I never thought I would run for public office. I actually looked down on electoral politics and politicians. And one day I realized, you know, that if I wanted to, that the change was in with, within me and had an opportunity to, to run. You know, I remember reading a book about America. And uh, the book was called Bowling Alone. Any of you ever read it? And basically, it chronicles um, America and the civitas in America from, since the 1840s uh, when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came to America and wrote Democracy in America. And he, he talks about how in this country, what was different about our democracy was that it was alive, that people were involved. They were involved in the anti-slavery movement, in the women's movement, in the, in the, uh, in the craft union movement. Uh, they were involved in their churches. They were involved in civic life. And what made America different was this, uh, that the democracy was alive. Well, you, you go all the way to the 1950s, and that's what's characterized America's democracy, is that we were involved uh, in the Boy Scouts and churches and the trade unions at our workplace and in virtually every part of, of civic society. Since the 1950s, You've seen a real drop off uh, in America in, in that civic life, and, 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 and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. You know, people always talk to me when they ask about uh, how do you get elected or how do you get involved in public life, and they think you go and work for a politician. And I, actually, I, I don't think that's how you do it. I, I think what you, what you need to do is, is you need to get involved and make a difference. And you, you, we have here the sharpest young people in, in the world, in the United States of America certainly, but you know, in some of the best schools anywhere. And I'd like to submit to you that uh, the best way that you could use your skills is in service of others. You know, the, the fact of the matter is what's wrong with our democracy today, in my last race, uh, it was mentioned that I got reelected in my last race, uh, about 17% of the electorate voted. Um, in my first race, one of the most exciting uh, mayoral races in 2001, 36% of the people voted. Uh, in my second race, 29% uh, of the people wrote, uh, voted. When you think about the lack of participation in our democracy, I think it has everything to do with people aren't involved. Uh, they're not only not voting, they're not involved. And, uh, I really believe that, that we need to uh, change that. And so uh, early on in my administration, what we, we engage in these things called days of service, uh, trying to get young, particularly young people, but everybody involved in uh, making a difference, planting a tree, mentoring a child, feeding the homeless, doing something uh, to connect with community. And uh, in everything we do in the city, I, I try to have that component. Uh, as an example, we've had about 127,000 people 
involved in our days of service over the last four years. And people, you know, Muslims going to work in a Jewish childcare center, you know, whites going to Watts, who, you know, most of them have never been there. Uh, you know, folks in the African-American community working uh, with immigrants, uh, trying to connect uh, to one another and getting people engaged in this idea that the solution or, or the change is within them, that they have an opportunity to, uh, to get involved. So one of the things I wanted to, to, to speak to is this idea uh, of service of others. I mean, I, I was talking to Chris and I, on the way down here, and he was telling me that he was in the Peace Corps. Uh, this Chris, back over here. And you know, in the 1960s, when I grew up, long time ago, um, it was an era of hope and opportunity, uh, uh, this sense of the possible and optimism uh, in, and an idealism in the country that was uh, really beautiful. Ben was working with uh, Justice for Janitors and working with unions. and. I'd like to submit to you that the most important thing you all could do uh, is to use your talents uh, for, in the service of others. And uh, you, when you look at the challenges of the AIDS pandemic crisis, hunger in the world, the, the civil rights and civil liberties struggles all across the world, uh, what, a, what a blessing it would be to have you use your talents in those fields. Uh, too many young people today, in my mind, uh, don't understand uh, this idea of giving back and this idea of, of using your skills uh, in the service of others. And um, I, that was what I wanted to talk about for a few minutes. And I know we have to do question and answer. So uh, maybe generate some questions from you around this idea of what you can do uh, to change the world. Well, I agree with the mayor. Uh, it starts at the bottom, usually. We don't have a revolution in the streets, thank goodness, or a push against our government. Seven days in May haven't occurred. But uh, it starts with, with you. It starts at the bottom. When, when the mayor worked with others, uh, with Cesar Chavez, it resulted in change for farm workers. Uh, he worked with others, civil rights. It resulted in change. But the top had to make the change since we don't have the revolution. So how does that work at the top? When I came to Washington in 1961, I, I was idealistic. I hope I'm still idealistic in many senses. But I learned very quickly. It doesn't come about simply because people are good and they're going to do good things. I watched the great Senate debate in 1964 for the Civil Rights Bill, which eliminated de jure segregation in the United States. Before then, you drank at one water fountain and someone else drank at another and all that. And it was the Southerners' last stand. But Democrats from the South and Republicans, conservatives, often banded together to control the Senate, even though on paper the Democrats had the majority. The leader of the Republicans was a man named Everett McKinley Dirksen from Illinois. He was a conservative, but he too thought it was time for change. But he didn't stand up in his caucus one day and say, all right, boys, all boys, well, Margaret Chase Smith, sorry, boys and one girl on the Republican side, because he knew that wouldn't work. So he starts out opposing the bill. No, no, but this is not fair, this is not right, it's not the American way. And he wrings as many concessions as they're writing the bill from the Democrats who want the bill, uh, not the Southern Democrats, as he can. And he makes, he gets some concessions. 
Then when he's got those concessions, he can go to his caucus, which he did, and say, well, all right, they've come our way some distance here. It's the right thing to do. So now he swings behind the bill. Still not enough. In those days, it took 67 votes to break a filibuster. Today, it's 60 votes. There's still two votes short. In comes Lyndon Johnson. At the height of his power, the assassination has given him, plus his knowledge of how to work the United States Senate. He had been the majority leader. A great power there. And he puts the hammer down on two swing Democrats who would go either way. In one, he simply says, in effect, I'm going to withhold government programs from your state, and you're not going to get reelected. To the other, he says, I'm going to give you government programs <laughs> to your state, and you will get reelected. They both voted. They won by one vote. That's the way it worked, not just because good people decided they needed to do a good thing. Second quick story, and I'm coming to modern times in a moment. In <laughs> 1975, the good people from the Louisiana delegation, we're kind of in a recession, said, we've got to have jobs in this state. How are we going to do that? And someone says, well, let's have the Corps of Engineers build a barge canal between the Mississippi River and Shreveport, 210 miles away, and we create a lot of jobs. Well, they brought it to the Ford administration. The Ford administration said, that's ridiculous. Shreveport, a, a, a medium-sized city, not great at manufacturing, has rail transportation, bus transportation, auto transportation, air transportation, does not need a barge canal on the taxpayers of this country. We're not for it. But the Louisiana delegation got it started. Presidents don't have a line-item veto, you know, on the budget, so it went through. Jimmy Carter came in. His people looked at it and said, this is ridiculous. We're, we're throwing public money into a project that is not really beneficial, and so we're going to cut it out. And the Louisiana delegation, once again, kept it going. Carter lost power very quickly and didn't have the power to do anything. Now comes Ronald Reagan. He is the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, poor Jimmy Carter sent home. Reagan is in the White House, and his budget director, David Stockman, says, we are going to stop this, and we have the power to stop it. Down to the Oval Office one day came the two senators of Louisiana. I think neither one of them had met Ronald Reagan before. And they introduced themselves. And one guy says, uh, my name is Russell Long, and I'm chairman of the uh, Finance Committee in the Senate. And the other guy says, uh, my name is Bennett Johnston, and I'm chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. Now, Mr. President, we understand you want a big tax cut. And you may be right. Uh, uh, and, of course, to get the tax cut through the Senate that you're talking about, you have to come through our committees. Uh, uh, now, we need this barge canal for the people of Louisiana. It's creating jobs for our people. We're Democrats. You're a Republican. I don't see how we'd like to support you on the tax cut. We don't see how we can do that, go home to Louisiana. When you cut out the barge canal, uh, it just doesn't seem possible that we could do that. But we would like to help you. And so, as David Stockman tells the story, Ronald Reagan got his tax cut. And the good people of Shreveport now have barge traffic to Mississippi. Uh, we at Primetime Live in the early 90s tried to chronicle this story and say how terrible it was. And I felt a little guilty because the last lock and dam is named the Lindy Boggs Lock and Dam. And my darling, Cokie Roberts, next to my mo mother being deceased, next to my wife, is a great woman that I, and to say her mother shouldn't have her name was a terrible thing. Now to modern times. It's percolated from the bottom, up all these years. Harry Truman said we should have universal health care. 1950. 
Barack Obama has come in with a head of steam behind him, great popular support, just like Ronald Reagan, if you will, uh, and he wants to get it done. How's he going to get it done? Well, this may be an idea whose time has come. It started with what you say to these young people, get involved, get to work, get it going. So he's now got an idea whose time has come which does not guarantee under our present system, and if you can find a way to change it, more power to you, that it's going to get done. Because just as she was right, it took Martin Luther King Jr. and the president to pass that bill in 1964. I was there, I'm telling you. She meaning Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. She was exactly right when she said that. Of course, the Obamas seem always dissing Dr. King. That's very wise of them from the political, tactical standpoint. She wasn't dissing Dr. King. She was telling the truth about what had happened. Uh, just as, as she was right there, it is going to take a Congress and Barack Obama and log rolling, if you will, to get, I guarantee you, if the Democrats decide to go the traditional route on something that's uh, this important with changes that are not just revenue, although they are revenue, and require in the Senate 60 votes. Now, if they decide to go the route in which they don't have to have 60 votes, they can do it with simple majority, 51 votes, a reconciliation saying it's a revenue, which I think is maybe ill-advised because if you don't have a popular support for something that's reflected in the kind of vote that makes sense, you're on shaky ground. But if they decide to go the traditional route, to get the 60 votes, some people are going to have to be promised things and some people are going to have to be strong-armed at the end. It's just the way it works. I close by saying if you can find a way, given human nature and politics, and here's a man who knows, listen, anyone who gets reelected, mayor of Los Angeles, good man, but knows about politics and knows how to get these things done. If you can find a way to do it differently, please do. Otherwise, accept the fact. Don't become cynical. Keep your idealism that to actually make something work, these are the things that have to be done. And I'm through.